join with me in the reading of God's word this morning. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Well, Father in heaven, as we come to that amen, as we come to that commission, we bow our heads to you this morning, asking you to first bless this congregation with ears to hear and a heart to believe and feet to run with what they hear. Help us, Father, to walk in faith. And help us as we come together around James this morning to support him, to uplift him, to encourage him, to disciple him, to strengthen him, and to lead him in the ways of Christ. But Father God, more than we can ever do, and we commit to doing that, we ask, Father, that your spirit would go with him, that you would lead James to be a student of your word, that you would help him to recognize the value of walking as you tell us. And he would recognize that he has a friend in you, in Jesus, who sticks closer than a brother. Father, let him know he's never alone. We thank you for your goodness to us this morning, for the privilege of being able to baptize this one. We don't discount. And Father, we thank you. Be glorified now in the teaching of your word, in the reading of your word, and in the lives that we live in light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll ask you all please to be seated. And James, I'm going to ask you to come for a moment. We have a baptism certificate. This piece of paper just celebrates and acknowledges that today, the 15th of July, uh, you were baptized in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the First Baptist Church, and we welcome you as a brother in Christ. Amen. Thank you, Thank you brother. Um, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 28, 18 is just the place we're going to begin today as we talk about this subject. You know, it's good to use uh, object lessons or moments, teachable moments like this, um, to talk about important subjects. And baptism is an important subject for the church. It's an important subject for believers, and I'm afraid that many believers have misunderstood the importance of baptism. And I want to get right into it today. The introduction to this is, is the mandate for the ordinance of baptism. And you read it right here in these verses of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where he says, and, and see, this is, this is a twofold command of Jesus. Now, he's telling us to make disciples, and this is how you do it. You disciple them, by, you baptize new believers, and then you teach them. It's a twofold process. The earliest Christian followers were tasked by the resurrected Jesus to do just one thing, just make disciples. Just make disciples. That is of fundamental importance today, and it's probably one of the things that lacks most. And so when I prayed for James this morning, it's important for us to realize the importance of discipling him. And it's, we need to recognize the importance, the need for our own discipleship. Jesus commanded this discipleship or this, this uh, work to make disciples as a twofold process that involved the ordinance of baptism. An ordinance is different than a sacrament. A sacrament, according to Roman Catholic theology, is a sacrament is something that confers grace. 
Your baptism didn't confer grace. Jesus did. Baptism is an illustration. Jesus Christ poured out. In other words, and we'll talk about it in a minute, there is no regeneration in the water. You don't become saved by being baptized. You become saved by trusting in Jesus. James did that first. That's what's important. He trusted Jesus. And so the ordinance of baptism, the command of Jesus to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is part of making disciples. And then teaching those who have been baptized the words and the instructions of the Lord. So in essence, we were called as Christian men and leaders and so forth to immerse men and women in the water and in the word. But the process of making a disciple begins before the baptismal pool is entered. To say that's not adding anything to the words that Jesus commanded. He said we should baptize and we should teach. I'm not adding anything by saying something has to happen before baptism. Because as we have already implied, you have to come to faith in Jesus before you can be baptized. Otherwise, it's just simply a bath or getting wet, but it's not a a demonstration of something that's occurred. You must be saved before you're baptized. They must have, you must have a recognition before you're baptized, be a, a conviction, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded in John 16, 8 and 9, in John 16, 8 and 9, we're reminded that the Spirit will convict the world of sin. And the Holy Spirit then brings conviction to our lives. Before I ever trusted Jesus with my life, I recognized I was a sinner in need of him. And I recognized I was a sinner in need of him because the Holy Spirit convicted me. And part of that conviction comes from hearing the word of God and then applying it to my heart. And as I heard it and applied it, I was convicted of sin. So part of this is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we have sin. And frankly, folks, that we're hopeless apart from Jesus Christ to do anything about it. You and I can't do anything to save ourselves. We need Jesus. And we are reminded of that in Romans 6.23 and also Romans 3.23. The third thing, we must come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God's only Son, sent in human form to deal with our hopeless condition. And we must come to trust in the finished work of God's only Son on the cross, where He finally and fully dealt with our sins. And only after that can we be baptized. To our point, the Bible offers an example. In an Ethiopian eunuch, ministered to by Philip in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. And in Acts 8, 36 through 38, we read these words. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water. Now, Philip had already been moved. He was already brought here. He's already by this Ethiopian eunuch. He's already showed up on the scene. The eunuch was reading what we understand to be Isaiah 53. He was reading from the Old Testament. And he was reading these words, and he had come back from, from a celebration, a holy celebration. He was a, um, if not an actual Jew, he was uh, one, an adherent of Judaism, a pilgrim of sorts. And it says in, in this verse in 36, See here is water, said the eunuch. What hinders me now from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, said, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Clearly from this example, we see that faith in Christ is the prerequisite for baptism. 
There are a lot of churches today, folks. There are a lot of denominational belief systems that involve the christening of a child upon their birth. Infancy, eight, years, eight days after their birth, they're christened in the name of the Lord. I was one of them. I was christened in a Catholic church eight days after my birth. Great. Guess when I became a believer in Jesus Christ? In 1988, when I was about 22. Or, oh, I don't know, my math is not my strong suit. I was older. Okay. I was older. And I was baptized again. Because at first, baptism wasn't a baptism of my faith. When I was baptized at eight days old, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know who to believe. I was barely learning to trust my mama. Right? We don't know anything at that age. But when we come full grown, and we recognize that we have sin in our lives, we recognize Jesus came to deal with our sin. Then we can trust in him, and then we can be baptized. And now we're making a demonstration of faith that's built on something that literally happened in our life. So does the Bible speak on pedo-baptism and say that we should baptize children in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Guys, I'm telling you straight up that if you're baptizing in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your eight-week-old or eight-day-old child, I don't care if it's eight weeks, eight days, I don't care. If you're baptizing that child, what you're actually saying is, I, the parent... I, the parent, promise to raise that child up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You're making a promise. That child can't do anything. It's your promise. You're covenanting that you're going to raise that child up in the ways of the Lord. The child hasn't made a decision yet. You're making it. We need to remember that. So we have this mandate from Jesus concerning the ordinance of baptism. But then we have an exhortation to be baptized. And I'll ask you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39 for that, as we see Peter speaking after he's spoken to this large audience of folks that have come to uh, celebrate the Passover, celebrate actually Pentecost, not the Passover at all, Pentecost. And so they were there celebrating in this place. And the Spirit descended upon the disciples present. And then Peter began to preach. And he preached, and part of his message to those people was a, an accusation that they were responsible for the death of their Messiah. That they had crucified their Messiah. And this cut them, it says, in Acts 2.37, it says they were cut to the heart when they heard this. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as our God will call. Now, I'm going to go on a limb, and I don't think I'm too far out on it, when I say the promise that he's referring to is the promise that we read about in Joel, that your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall prophesy and so forth that Joel was speaking of. And this promise is to not only the adults in the room, but to the children in the room. And if you remember anything about VBS, one of the things I told James and the boys and the girls that were with him that day was you don't have to be an adult to trust Jesus. You just have to have faith. You don't have to wait till you're an adult. That's what I told James. And he jumped up and said, I want Jesus. But there is some controversy in this section. And if you're not careful, a reader of the entire Bible, you're going to mess this up. Because he said what? He said, you must be baptized for the remission of sins. Repent and baptize for the remission of sins. 
So it sounds like Peter was saying that a person's salvation is dependent on their being baptized. And frankly, guys, outside the context of the entire New Testament, you wouldn't know anything different. See, it requires us to read our Bibles. It requires us to understand what the Bible says on the subject of baptism. It requires us to understand verses like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And when we understand that, then we understand the beginning of the fact that our baptism cannot possibly save us because it's a work of our flesh. Baptism doesn't save. But this is a mistake many people make. And they speak about uh, baptismal regeneration. Where the waters of baptism... Listen, any water I ever got in, I only made foul. Any water I ever got in, I got in with a bar of soap and I got it funky. I got cleaned up. The water didn't. But the water didn't change me other than to get the dirt off. Well, listen, you guys read my bulletin this morning about that 57 Bel Air. You know, cleaning up the surface of a 57 Bel Air and making it look good, that's great. But if you paint it over rust, you still got a rust bucket. Jesus didn't come to change the outside. He came to change the inside. He's working from the bones and working out, not from the outside in. That's not how it works. So we need to remember that baptismal regeneration, in other words, being transformed in the water, that's not a biblical thing. A careful reading of the New Testament writing refutes the notion that one's saved by baptism. So I'm going to take you through a few verses to kind of bring you there. And these are Paul's words now in 1 Corinthians 1.17, where Paul basically is identifying that uh, one is no more saved by baptism than one has made a Cadillac by saying there are one. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, it says, Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul said. Now listen, if baptism was the big deal, if baptism was the only deal, if baptism was the way to save, he wouldn't be saying, I, Jesus didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. If it had been the other way around, he'd have said that. He said, Jesus didn't send me to baptize. He downplayed the baptism and he lifted up the gospel preaching because that's it. Salvation is in the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not by the waters of baptism. And later, Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Moreover, brothers, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved. He clearly identifies by those words that the gospel is that which saves and nothing else. Now, am I preaching to the choir? Perhaps, maybe everybody in this room agrees with me on this subject, and yet there are some that do not, that do not have this understanding. And so I want to make it clear to us that before you go there, Jesus has to come in here. He has to enter into our heart. That small propositional word in the Greek, ice, that we read there in verse 38 is the problem. It's translated for there, and it says, it should actually be translated because of. And the word ice is translated in a number of ways, including for and because of. The way verse 38 does read is repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for 
the remission of sins. But with the proper rendering of the proposition, it reads, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the remission or the forgiveness of sins. You see, this is something we do because something's already been done. It's not something we do to make something happen. For the Jews present to hear Peter's first message, they're convicting regarding their conviction regarding the crucifixion and the crucifying of the Lord Jesus Christ, along with their other, other sins, that it led them to repent. And it led them to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And you know what they found when they turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins? Rejection. No, they found forgiveness. When they turned to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, they found forgiveness. When you turned to Jesus, what did you get? When you asked him to forgive you for your sins, what did you receive? Condemnation or forgiveness? So they received forgiveness for the sins, and then after having received forgiveness by faith, they did two things. They disassociated themselves from the people who had crucified the Lord. In other words, they disassociated themselves from the religion of the Jews. And instead, they identified themselves with Jesus. Now, a minute, I'm going to put all this together for us, hopefully in a way that you fully connect with. Their baptism, the baptism of those on that day, became symbolic of the fact that Jesus' blood had washed away their sin, and it was their public profession, faith. So an announcement to the world that I am a Christian. Let me go to the characterization of baptism, and I want to share with you a minute something that we've been talking about a bunch, the 2000, and, uh, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. In, in, in the next several months, we'll probably be talking more about the doctrine that we find there, because it seems to me that in our churches today, we need to double down on doctrine, because we're getting a little fuzzy about doctrine. We're getting a little fuzzy about what the Bible teaches and about what we believe. And so we're, we are actually approving of things that Jesus didn't. And we're denying things that Jesus approves of. So I think it's important for us to double down on doctrine. And we will. But in the Baptist faith and message of 2000, it defines baptism like this. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ. It's a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead, being a church ordinance. It is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. And to that last line, I'm going to defer to the end of the message. I really want us to dial down on that. It's an important point that we have trivialized over the years. This definition that we have in the Baptist faith and message identifies baptism as an act of obedience and as an illustration of and a testimony to a person's faith in the Lord and a prerequisite to church membership and to the Lord's Supper. In a sense that it's an act of obedience, we've already seen it. Jesus mandated it in Matthew 28. It's an act of obedience. Even remember Jesus. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. And yet he did. He was. He presented himself to John and he was baptized. He said, permit it to be so, Jesus said. And he was baptized. And how was Jesus baptized? Was he sprinkled? They threw a bucket of water at him? <laughs> they laid him down in the water and they raised him back up. I want you to understand something about water baptism the way we do it. Why do we immerse? Why isn't it a sprinkling? Is it a big deal? Well, it's kind of a big deal. 
Because when I'm buried in, when, when I die, I expect to be buried about six feet under. Something like that. I'm going to be covered up by dirt. I've told you in the past, the water of baptism is clear dirt. It's just wet, clear dirt. It symbolizes our burial, our death. And when we're brought back up out of that water, it symbolizes resurrection to new life. Immersion is the only way to communicate that picture. Death being laid down in the grave, and you can read it. We're going to talk about it today because I see some puzzled looks. We're going to share a, a, a little bit of time today. But in the sense that it's an act of obedience, we've already covered it. And Peter commanded it in Acts. So I want to spend a few minutes on the symbolism of this act. And I want us to consider two passages from the New Testament from Paul on the subject. The first one is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. If you have your Bible, turn there to Colossians 2. In Colossians 2, 11 through 15, it says, In him, in Jesus, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all your trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us he's taken that out of the way he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross having disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it we read there, buried with him in baptism in which we were also raised. We have recognized that we were dead in sin and we were raised to newness of life in Christ. We speak of this death and this rising. We're speaking of spiritual life. We were dead men walking without Jesus Christ and we were given spiritual life in Jesus. The second passage I want us to look at for a minute this morning, is, and then I'll kind of pull it together for you, is Romans 6, 1 through 11. Both of these need treatment on their own. We could spend an entire service on either one of these passages, but I just wanted to pull out a few points that kind of illustrate what I'm trying to say today. What shall we say then, Paul says? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 1 through 11, certainly not. How shall we who died in sin, died to sin, live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise also you reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there is so much content 
in these two passages. So theologically rich are these two passages. But from them, I would like to make a few points about today's subject. The first one is this. And I want you to think about this in terms of your own baptism. Baptism illustrates the complete break with one's past life. A complete break that took place when they first trusted in Jesus. A complete break. It doesn't mean that that's where you broke off your relationship with the world. It just means that when you're laid down there, listen, what does death do except separate us from what? The living. Death separates us from the living. When we're buried, we are, we are cut off from those who are alive. When we are buried, spiritually speaking, with Jesus Christ and raised up again, we're buried. It's a complete break with what? With our sinful past, with our sinful choices, with our selfishness, with our worldly ways. It's a complete break with all those things that used to influence us. If we were porn addicts, it's a break from that. If we were alcoholics, it's a break from that. If we were any kind of addict, it's a break from that. It's a break. It's a change. When we talk about repentance, it's a, a, it's a 180 in the opposite direction. It's a break. In Romans 6.3, we read that we were baptized. And when we were baptized, we were baptized into Christ's death. Listen, when Jesus died, he died. There's no swoon. He didn't die. He didn't pass out and then come back. He, it was, he wasn't playing dead. He wasn't playing possum. And by the way, I saw a really smart possum. It's the first possum I ever saw that actually ran to get out of my way. Most of the time, they just sit there and wait. Okay, kill me now. Oh, okay, just say it. Jesus did not play possum. He literally died. His human life ceased. And in the simplest sense, our baptism illustrates that our former sinful life, the old man and his deeds, as we read in Colossians chapter 3, 9, are dead. The old man not being the old guy that's 70 or 80 years old, but the old spiritual me is dead. That life ended when we truly came to Jesus. I hope you're hearing me this morning because as I keep on trying to remind us, we're not, this isn't about um, an elixir. We're not coming here to receive the morphine that we need for the week so that we can go through the struggles and the pains of life that we may face this week. That's not why Jesus came. But this is the real thing. And so I, I really want us to consider our relationship in light of the things we're talking about right now. Put another way. Every believer is saying at their baptism what was said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what we're saying. Does it mean we're going to live a perfect life and we're never going to foul up? No, it doesn't mean that. The Bible tells us in another place, if any man says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But we have to understand that this is a break. This is a change. This is a new direction and a new life. We, are, we have crucified. We, our life was with Jesus. We are crucified with Christ. Now, it's not me who lives, Paul said, but Christ living in me, guiding me. As Paul said in Colossians 2, in baptism we have a picture of, of being buried with the Lord Jesus and then raising again with him through faith. 
in the working of God. And that leads me to the second point that I want us to think about. Not only does our baptism illustrate our break with our sinful past, it illustrates our entrance into newness of life, into a new life. Both the passage from Colossians and Romans indicates that those who have been saved not only died, but raised. They rose with Christ, as Paul said in Romans 6, to newness of life. We're reminded by that verse that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, that same glory of the Father, also raises us from our grave. Resurrection power not only brought Jesus out of the tomb, but brings us out of the water. It gives us new life. In Jesus, we have resurrection life. And now we have abundant life in Jesus. Do you? Do you have abundant life in Jesus? In actuality, our conversion doesn't involve physical death. That's obvious, right, guys? It's figurative, and it's spiritual death, wherein we die to our former lusts, and our former appetites. We die to the power of sin and the control of Satan. We die to personal dominion over our lives. A lot of us like to sit as king over our own lives. You need to get out of the way because Jesus wants to be king in your life and you're not both going to occupy that throne. That's one of the things we may still need to get rid of is that personal dominion over our own lives where we say, I make my decisions, whether it's with my money or it's with my time or with whatever it is. I make my decisions and let Jesus be Lord of your life. And after all that, we come alive. We exchange all of that and come alive to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit with the intent, guys, of submitting to the Father. He calls us to submit to one another. He tells wives, submit to your husbands. But before he ever tells a wife to submit to her husband, he tells all of us to submit to each other. Submission is an important part of our interaction as human beings with each other. And submission is a valuable and very important aspect of our relationship with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. You must submit. We abide in Christ. This is what this is talking about. When we submit, when we come to this newness, newness of life, we're abiding in Christ. And he's abiding with us in John 15, 4 through 7. He, he said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If any man abides in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. And he said, but without me, you can't do a thing. So it illustrates our death spiritually. It illustrates our life spiritually. And the last thing it illustrates, and probably the most important and, and, and really the most powerful for me, is it illustrates a person's commitment to the Lord. Baptism is a public stand for Christ. I want you to understand that in the first century, it was a whole lot harder to be a Christian than it is for y'all today to be a Christian. All right? Because their public profession of faith was standing up and doing what James did today and being baptized. And why was that a big deal? Because if you made a public testimony that you were saved and walking with Jesus, there's a good chance somebody's going to want to kill you. Those are the days of persecution, and those days are not over. Let me back up a minute and try to go through this for you. In the definition of the ordinance of baptism, according to the Baptist faith and message, we read baptism as a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. A lot of people have questioned over the years, and maybe some of you all are wondering this morning, uh, why isn't my public profession of faith in Jesus good enough? 
Why isn't the fact that I say I'm a believer, why isn't the fact that I say I trust in Jesus Christ good enough? Why must I be baptized in order to be a member of a given church? Again, we should understand, we should understand that for the early church, baptism was one's public confession. As far as they were concerned, if you wouldn't be baptized, you must not truly be trusting in Jesus. One man wrote that for the first century Christian, baptism meant he was following through on his commitment to Christ regardless of the consequences. Those consequences often included persecution and death. Guys, I've been standing in this pulpit for 16 years. And in 16 years' time, I've told you repeatedly, year after year, that there's going to come a time when we comfortable Christians in the United States are going to face the same kind of persecution that everyone else has faced throughout time because all who walk godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And that little mic drop for emphasis. We will suffer persecution. Tom Aleaf, writing on the subject of baptism for the Southern Baptist Convention in 2006, wrote these words. Even today, in many arenas antagonistic to the Christian faith, the act of baptism invites persecution. Several years ago, Aleaf says, I was a guest preacher to a congregation of over 2,000 people in just such a setting. And at the close of the preaching, the service, uh, the preaching service, the pastor announced to the, the church would observe the Lord's table, communion. And with that announcement, over 1,000 people promptly stood and walked away. Stunned, Aleaf asked through an interpreter why those people were leaving. And the responder, the pastor responded, these people are not yet willing to die. My pastor friend, a victim of persecution himself, then explained matter-of-factly that once a person believed in Jesus, the next act of obedience was baptism. Such a public exposure of faith already had led to the death of several and could easily cost the lives of even more. Unwilling to die and therefore unbaptized, they were not considered qualified for either church membership or the observance of the Lord's table. People such as these, as those mentioned above, would find it strange. These people, these people who struggle because of their, uh, the fear of persecution and the danger of death, would, would find it strange uh, our own discussions on baptism, especially those which concern, uh, in which we express concern over the embarrassment or the inconvenience that baptism might bring and cause. So as I wrap this up, i got to ask a question. I asked Tina first, and I really think this is on target, but if a person isn't ready to die for the Lord, has he or she truly come alive to him? Well, Pastor, you really can't answer that question until you're put in a position, until somebody holds a gun to your head or says, you know, Jesus or life. Uh, if you choose Jesus, you're going to die. If you, if you deny Jesus, you'll live. Well, we can't make that decision until then. No, you better make that decision before the gun comes or you'll make the wrong decision when you see it. So the question remains, if a person isn't ready to die for the Lord, has he or she really, truly come alive to Jesus? Listen to what Jesus said. He declared it in Luke 9, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. For the early church, baptism was the public profession of faith. I've said it three times now. Avoiding it for any reason, even today, is if to say, I like Jesus, but I don't want to associate myself with him. 
I like Jesus, but I don't want to be embarrassed by the stigma that comes attached to being called a Christian. I don't want people to look cross-eyed or funny at me because I say I'm a Christian or avoid me or anything. I want to continue to have fun with my friends. So to avoid it, it's as if to say, I really don't want to associate with Jesus. Or worse, it's to declare, I haven't yet been reborn. It's for this reason that I believe the Baptist faith and message includes that baptism is a prerequisite for church membership in the Lord's Supper. There, frankly, guys, is good reason to doubt the sincerity of a person's faith without baptism. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. You said baptism doesn't save. It doesn't. But if you're not willing to testify that Jesus did actually save you, are you not actually ashamed of him and his words? And now, the other day I was watching a show, and I like car shows. I, I spend more time on velocity than I spend on a treadmill, obviously. I like watching them restore these cars. And as I was talking about that 57 Bel Air, it was beautiful. The people that sold the car to these older folks told them it was museum quality, and yet when a true restorer got to the car, all he could see through that beautiful paint job was rust. Somebody just painted over a rust bucket. They just applied paint on top of rust and corrosion. Guys, for some Christians, our faith in Christ is like a paint job, like that paint job. It's something external that doesn't deal with the real problem. Jesus didn't die for you to look better, to act differently. Those are outgrowths of the one thing he did die for, which is to save you from your sin and to become Lord of your life. He works from the inside out. He transforms from the inside out. See, the Bel Air was taken to somebody who did it right, finally. Frank, you know, they started with, not the body, they went to the chassis. They went to the frame. They determined if the frame was going to be enough to support the car or even be safe. And they went to the power plant to see if there was even enough in that engine to go. They started with the guts of the car. Jesus, guys, didn't come to change our looks. He came to deal with our guts, with our inner man, with our heart. He came to change our lives from the inside out. This is the end result. The baptism is the end result and the beginning. It's the second step of faith. See, unlike religion, and you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Religion is organized. It's stiff. It's scripted. It's dead. You never were called to religion when you were called to Jesus. You were called to relationship. And that's alive. That's living. That's real. Unlike religion, Jesus came to deal with a problem deep inside. And when we respond to him in faith, he begins a work that eventually works its way out of us in attitude and in action. Baptism is an outward representation of that initial transformation that began by faith in Jesus. It is 
the second step of faith.